0: God Network News Where we give you a new perspective
1: on events happening in our world today.
0: This is GNN.
2: This is God Network News, episode 49.
3: This podcast is proudly listed at podcastpickle.com.
2: In this episode of GNN, uh, we will be continuing with our reading of chapters from the new book, There's a Sheep in My Bathtub. And I hope that you're enjoying listening to these chapters. And again, this is our gift to you, our faithful listeners, as a free audio book to you of this really fantastic, really exciting, new, and innovative book that has come out by Brian Hogan. And again, in the show notes, you can find a hot link to where you can get your own hard copy of that if you wish.
3: There's a sheep in my bathtub. Chapter 30, Mongols Follow the Khan of Khans. As summer drew to a close, I found my time being filled with curriculum development for our second Disciples School class starting September 25th. Twenty-two had graduated from the first class, and the conferring of diplomas at Sunday's celebration service had excitement at a fever pitch. This time around, we had 40 applications for the 30 slots. We were still praying over the applications at our weekly team meeting on September 21st, the day after we'd all celebrated Melody's 10th birthday. We had finished the meeting to discover snow had covered the city in a thick white blanket while we feasted and discussed the School of Discipleship applications. What a shock! It seemed way too early in the year for winter to start. The radiators hooked to centrally supplied city heating were still not working properly, but we had purchased two electric heaters to supplement them. Even if our power bills went sky high as Mongolian friends grimly warned us, we were not going to spend another six months shivering inside our home. We had to meet again to discuss other disciples School issues. Student feedback had prompted changes. This class was to be shorter in duration, three months instead of six and more intensive, an extra early morning session every week. At the students' urging, we kept classes in the very early morning and resolved to be even tougher about the rules and fees and attendance. So, a leaner, meaner disciple school was ready to turn out more solid disciples of Jesus. The leadership was in Lance's capable hands this time, much to the relief of Magnus and me. He directed while training two alumni from the first class to take over for the next one. Magnus and I designed a curriculum around core subjects. Our team and AirDinet Church leaders taught every week. Guest instructors from Mulambader filled in the few gaps. I thoroughly enjoyed teaching four of the weeks. At the same time, we discovered AirDanet was going to be treated to two completely different paradigms for training up leaders. The three lady missionaries from Minneapolis informed us that their Bible school would open soon. This was fine with us and we encouraged them in their efforts. Both teams had continued to cooperate with the Spirit in his work of reconciliation. They began to solicit our counsel about their plans and strategy for the Bible School. We were diligently trying to give honest advice without giving offense. In this, the Lord chose to use Louise and me. Magnus had advised the American ladies that their curriculum looked great, except for the format which was too academic for the young Mongolian church. He also warned them that their plan to pay the students' financial incentives to attend classes had already been tried in Ulaanbaatar. It had failed miserably to produce sound disciples and succeeded in causing trouble and divisions. There are about a million sound historical, cultural, missiological, psychological, and spiritual reasons to avoid paying national believers to obey Jesus Christ, but to enumerate them goes beyond the scope of my story. For now, let me just say that many missionaries have learned this through much blood, sweat, tears, and failure. In any case, the ladies didn't really hear Magnus' warnings due to a curious cultural difference between Americans and Swedes. My countrymen, and I include myself in this generalization, are used to a fairly direct communication style. Some would even say blunt and obnoxious whereas most Swedish folk tend to understate and hint in an effort to be diplomatic. Americans, as a result, sometimes miss the fact that they have just been corrected by Swedes. This phenomena is even more pronounced when the ultra-blunt Mongolians are on the receiving end of rebukes. Several days after Magnus had spoken with them, the ladies were excitedly sharing how they had received the funds from their home church to pay all of their Bible school students. I felt the... Spirit of God prompting me to share my concerns with them. American to American. I took their team leader to a restaurant and told her clearly the pitfalls in their path. I was stunned by her positive reaction. She was genuinely grateful. She asked me for books that backed up my assertions so she could effectively communicate the change in plans to her home pastor. By the next day, all three were voraciously reading the missions books I'd supplied. Our two teams met and the ladies announced their unanimous decision not to pay students. They still needed to convince the powers that be at home, whose strategy this was in the first place, but they said that they were prepared to obey God rather than man if it came to that. God's incredible goodness continued to amaze and confound us all. This wasn't the first time I'd had to provide on-the-job training for undertrained American missionaries. I began to understand that this was one reason why the Lord had sent a mission educator all the way to Mongolia. All the mistakes that can be made already have been made in the last two centuries, and I was glad to use my knowledge of mission history to help prevent the same mistakes from being repeated on the Mongolians. Bayada, the original believer who moved to Erdenet with the Alphonses to plant the church and an elder-to-be, had been studying English at the Foreign Language Institute. I had been teaching classes there, along with Magnus and Maria, until we had gone on furlough. Lance had taken my post there in our absence. Since my return, I had been idle as far as secular work, since our visas had been contested. After I signed a new contract with the mine, the Ministry of Labor approved the visas. However, there remained the issue of an outstanding fine for the month and a half we were illegal aliens. It took another couple of weeks for the mine to decide that they were responsible for this fine. Until they paid the fine, we could not receive the police residence permits and therefore could not work. It was trying, and yet God redeemed the time. Bayeda came to our apartment with several of her classmates, all former students of mine, and presented a plan. All of these young women had come to faith through Bayeda's witnessing and wanted to grow in their walk with the Lord. In fact, she had led 25 students to faith in Christ. No wonder her full name, Erdenbeier, translates to joyful treasure. However, their class load made regular involvement in Jesus' Assembly's house churches difficult. bieta had suggested that they form an English students house church and conduct it entirely in English. This way they could be discipled and work on improving their English at the same time. All of the students were already comfortable with me since I had been their teacher in the spring semester. I thought it sounded like a terrific idea, and I readily agreed to lead the club. We dubbed our gathering FACES for Fellowship and Christian English Study. We began meeting at our house to study together a discipleship book in English, How Christians Grow. It was thrilling to see these young women grow up in their newfound faith. A decade later, I had several Christian leaders approach me and remind me that they had been members of our FACES club. During the same time we were struggling to get our residence permits and visa issues settled, our apartment situation had gone critical, and then, miraculously, it was resolved. It had to be the prayers of our supporters. The problem was, we had never been the true owners of the flat we had attempted to purchase in Erdenat. The best we could do was to buy the right to rent. The building and all the apartments within were owned by the state. Now we were being told that even what we had bought was only as good as the word of the seller, an old herdsman who had been awarded use of the flat by the government. He had sold it to us because with twelve children and flocks, an apartment in the city was of no earthly use to his family. Cash, however, was desirable. The old herdsman was honorable, but he would moved far off with his flocks, and therein laid our peril." His prodigal son tried to use his father's absence to seize our home and evict us. He bribed Sukbot, the corrupt head of the housing department, and was given an official eviction notice to serve us. This same woman had a week earlier demanded to see our deed and had failed to return it. We suspected that our old enemy was up to something nefarious. The herdsman's son came to the door waving this official paper and yelling at Louise when I was out. When I returned, she told me. We asked the advice of our Mongolian friends who'd helped us with the original purchase. They said the best thing to do was to physically snatch the document away from him. The power to evict was not in the decision. It was actually in the stamped document itself. Since he'd obtained it through an expensive bribe, they reasoned that he wouldn't be able to replace it easily. When he came back, I was ready for him. I did not let on that I could understand his speech and acted puzzled by what the paper was all about. I took it to read it, and before he stepped in through the door, I pushed it shut and slammed the bolt home. He continued to bang on our metal door for some time, but I just shouted that he should bring the police if he had legitimate business with me. I had been assured the last thing he wanted was more hands greedy for bribes involved in this matter. This was a very discouraging and low time for us. In our imaginations, the corrupt housing ministry lady had grown to become an evil housing tsarina. Our documents were still on her desk. It was only a matter of time before Sukbot made a move to evict us for another buyer willing to grease her palms. After talking and praying with our team, we decided standing firm couldn't really hurt us. Miraculously, our documents were returned without comment a few days later. We never saw or heard from Sukbot again. The herdsman's son continued to come by and harass us periodically. Once he even brought his wife and pointed out our furnishings, saying in our hearing, this will all be ours soon. Eventually, he made the mistake of coming by when a really tall Mongolian male friend was visiting us. Our friend tore into him verbally with proof of his double-dealing and threatened him with exposure to the authorities. The young man crumpled like a punctured sub on the bottom of the Pacific Trench. By the end of September, the whole plot had completely disappeared, our residence permits were granted, and we felt secure. I started work at the copper mine the first week of October. There's a sheep in my bathtub. Chapter 31. Heading into the Home Stretch October had flown by, and it was November 2nd, Jedediah's birthday. Our team gathered around and helped us commemorate that day of joy just a year before, and the pain that inevitably followed. It was a year since the attack had hit us like a tsunami. The robust growth and health of the church was in marked contrast to its struggles of the previous November and December, when even survival looked unlikely. When Christmas came, Louise sent the following letter to our friends and supporters.
1: Christmas is upon us already. I had hoped it would never come again, but there is no stopping time, and that's as it should be. This Christmas will be filled with bittersweet memories for us. As most of you know, a year ago, our baby son, Jedediah, went home to live with Jesus. I think of him now, and I wonder what he would have been like now. He would have been 13 months old. Would he be walking as all his sisters were at this age? What color hair would he have? Melody and Molly were almost completely bald at this age. What color eyes does he have? Do I finally have a child with brown eyes like mine? I will not know these questions until I reach the Promised Land. I am not going to tell you this has been an easy year, and I have always felt the Lord's loving hands and trusted His goodness. This would be a lie. Grief is a strange thing. There have been days when I have been angry at God, angry at Jed, angry at the world. There have been days when I have wished it had been me and not Him, days when the anguish and sorrow seemed so deep I was sure I would drown. There have also been days where I have known the Lord's presence stronger than ever before in my life, days where I have felt comforted by the Lord himself, others where he used you to comfort me. There are still so many unanswered questions, questions I will not get answers to in my lifetime. But the one thing I can say without reservation is that I know when I get to heaven, Jed will be there to greet me with Jesus. This is, after all, the goal we have as parents, that our children will make it to heaven. Well, I have one down and three to go. Christmas does not seem a time to look at hard realities, and yet isn't that why Jesus came to earth in the first place. His death means life to me. I understand this giving of an only son far better than ever before. I fear Christmas will always be a difficult time for me because of the memories it will stir up. Please pray for us now, even though we know with absolute certainty Jed is safe with Jesus. We still hurt, and the wound his death caused still needs to heal. Our continuing need to talk about something that makes others so uncomfortable helps us to relate with the lepers in the Bible. I know it has been a year, and so I should be over this, but I will carry a tiny bit of this sorrow with me for the rest of my life until I hold my Son in heaven. The good news we have for you is that the birth of our Savior is being celebrated all over Mongolia this Christmas. That is something that up until a few years ago had never happened here since the time of creation. This is what our desire was in obeying our call to come here three years ago. In the small view, this knowledge doesn't ease our pain of loss at all, but in the big picture it makes all the difference.
3: Christmas festivities for the Hogan family were a pale shadow of Christmas's past. Louise and I could barely summon the inner resources to prepare for the joyful traditions and practices our daughters expected. We ourselves certainly didn't feel like celebrating. This holiday would never be the same for us. Still, the sheer busyness kept us going somehow. We took part in the huge Christmas dinner the church put on in a rented hall a few days before Christmas. So many people showed up that the tight conditions would have been a trial for anyone with even slight claustrophobia. The collective exhalations of the revelers condensed on the cold concrete walls and windows and ran in growing rivulets down onto the floor. The Mongolians loved the dinner party, and we enjoyed the walk home in the bitter cold, but fresh night air. Our team really came through for us and picked up the slack in our holiday cheer. Once the big day arrived, they all came over, and we spent the day together opening gifts and eating. The church's Christmas service was hard for us. The year before, we'd talked of having Jed play a live baby Jesus in the nativity drama, and seeing a doll in the manger brought fresh tears to Louise. Afterward, we all returned to our apartment lance and the swedes put together the most fantastic international feast with goose and pies and some swedish delicacies that were new to us one potato dish was called jansen's temptation and involved anchovies it was healing to laugh to exchange gifts and customs and just play with these folks who'd become such dear and close friends to us lance reinhardt louise and i brought in the new year 1996 in the same way we had welcomed the previous two We aimed the large green bottle of Russian champagne at the powdery whitewashed ceiling of our Soviet-era kitchen and let her rip. We discovered by accident in an identical kitchen in Ulaanbaatar in the first moments of 94 that the cork made a nice mark on the paint. It had become a tradition for the three of us to celebrate together and mark the ceiling. In our kitchen in Airdenet, a small dated piece of masking tape marked the new blemish and joined a partner that had proudly marked the place the 1995 New Year's Cork had hit. We remembered how that celebration had been a brief spark of joy in the dark days following Jed's death, an act of defiance against housing Tsarinas and the spiritual forces arrayed against us and our own grief-stricken hearts and minds. This year was different. We spoke of the changes and growth we'd witnessed over the past year, Lance had joined our team in March, and his gifts in discipling the believers to rapidly take up any ministry he started had made him an incredible asset. Due to Lance's efforts, our school of discipleship was running along great, completely in Mongolian hands. Our excitement grew as we shared together all of the pieces each had added. It had been becoming more and more obvious for several months that the end was in sight. As a team, we'd taken stock earlier that week and had realized with pleasure that our days in Mongolia were numbered. Throughout our time together as a team, we had placed a real priority on evaluation. We knew if we didn't regularly evaluate our activities in light of our end goal, we would never reach that goal. We needed constantly to check our progress. Often, this forced us to drop activities which, as good as they were, didn't bring us any closer to our goal. During a team meeting in the last week of December, we were excited to hear several accounts of how Erdanet's civic leadership was pleased with the church and its impact on the city. They particularly commented on the Mongolian character of the church. One leader declared he had opposed the church when he thought it was a foreign import, but now that I see it is completely Mongolian, I am very happy to have Jesus' assembly here in Erdanet. We also noted how older people continued to respond to the good news and how the church movement had just about matched the age and gender demographics of the city. This was a huge change from our first year and a half when we had been essentially an all-girl youth group. Most exciting was the realization that the Mongolian leaders were doing virtually everything for themselves. The only activities still in foreign hands were a couple of Bible studies, the literature production, and the training of elders-to-be. Our direct apostolic role was drawing to a close at an ever-accelerating pace. We began to dream that maybe by summer it would be time to dismantle the scaffolding and allow God's glorious construction to stand on its own. It was almost electric in that small kitchen as we realized our prayers, dreams, and hopes were actually coming to pass. We had no idea how far those hopes, dreams, and prayers would be surpassed. Louise and I admitted to Lance we had begun sending out feelers to YWAM operating locations around the world to see if they had a place for us to pursue what we sensed God wanted to do next with our family. He had been giving us a desire to train others in what we had learned and experienced in the task of starting movements of multiplying churches among unreached peoples. It was thrilling to think of the impact of dozens and even hundreds of teams out doing this on the frontiers. Lance began to open up as well. He had discovered a desire to return to Oregon and complete his college education. He had seen how a business or economics degree could open doors in Mongolia and elsewhere, at the same time equipping him to reach out through microenterprise and other business's mission ventures. We all chuckled as we remembered how during our training in Salem, Oregon, we'd taken a test that identified Lance's main motivational gifting as money and finance. That test had proven uncannily accurate for each of us. Louise had come out with bring to completion as her top motivation, and I had gotten be key, be central. Both of these described our roles on the team to a T. We even joked with some seriousness that Louise's prayers for God to allow us to leave Mongolia, the hardest place we'd ever been, had probably caused God to advance the timetable for our team's finishing. He certainly knew he had created in Louise a servant who would never leave a task unfinished. Magnus and Maria had been thinking ahead. Even after the churches didn't need our oversight and leadership, they still wouldn't have the ability to train Mongolian believers as cross-cultural missionaries. This task would still need to be done by outsiders, at least until some Mongolians got the experience and training to lead the missionary training by themselves. Magnus and Maria had begun to pray about offering that ministry to the Mongolian leadership, who we felt certain would eagerly accept. The church had been a hotbed of mission fervor for a long time. Since Mats Berberus, our rather tall and round Swedish baker, had basically gone native from the day he arrived, we all assumed he would go on living in Erdenet and probably end up marrying one of the incredibly lovely and amazingly competent local believers. Mats had arrived the previous summer and immediately commissioned a full traditional Mongolian outfit complete with historic accessories. He had out Mongolians, and the local lads had been stung into emulating his style. He'd actually started a revival craze for the hurum, a colorful brocaded jacket that had slipped into fashion history and museum cases until Motts had one tailor-made. All of a sudden, it seemed every guy in Erdnep from 18 to 25 was wearing a brand new hurum. Svetlana and Ruslan had a baby boy to contend with, and another on the way, With all the turmoil back home in Russia, life in Erdnet and their leadership in the Russian congregation actually had more to offer their young family than a return to Siberia. We all figured they would stay on for a number of years and continue to work with the Russian population of Erdnet. Magnus and I had both been trying to train Ruslan and Svetlana in missions, a subject their Bible school had covered too lightly, but neither of us had been able to devote the time we felt we should have to this task. We ended up talking till far into the wee hours with our friend and partner, Lance, and for the first year since we'd begun doing New Year's together, when we were finished, Lance left and walked home. Always before he'd had to spend the night, either because he had missed the last bus, or because his apartment was on the other side of Ulan Badr, and we laughed about this new innovation, breakfast on January 1st without Lance, and tried to lure him with toast, his favorite. It was so good finally having him on the team, even though it had taken a couple years. God's timing was perfect. Three weeks later, we were caught up in the celebration of a third birthday. The third is a very special birthday observance in Mongolia. The male child receives his first haircut on that day, and the shearing is performed by all the guests at his party. Typically, the little boy goes around the room with a bag and a pair of scissors. Each person cuts off a lock of beautiful soft virgin jet black baby hair and drops the lock and some paper money into the bag. These little guys make money like nobody's business. The birthday we were celebrating was not for a little Mongolian boy, however. We were gathered to honor a precious and beautiful three-year-old Mongolian girl, and this little lady was already betrothed at her tender age. Jesus' assembly in air Jesus's Jesus' bride, was three years old. Her growth and development had outstripped everyone's expectations, and she was almost ready for an independent journey following her bridegroom. The church leadership had arranged to hire the local movie theater for the birthday bash. That wasn't unusual. Our large celebration gatherings were pretty much forced into being in the cinema or the Women's Palace discotheque. On rare occasions, the copper mine would allow us to rent gornek the culture palace, which at 750 seats had the largest capacity in the city. When the day arrived, 350 Mongolians filled the theater to capacity. It was actually a shock to see the vivid evidence of growth right before our eyes. In a church that gathered in homes all over the city and beyond, we easily lost track of the actual numbers of those coming to Christ. What was even more exciting to me was the obvious fact that a makeup of the crowd was indistinguishable from the population on the streets outside the theater. We had been a youth church, even a teen girls club, for so long it sent a thrill up my spine to note there were no particular subset of society dominating our gatherings anymore. There were old men and women, some ancient Children and babies and everything in between. We had guys and girls, sportsmen and handicapped people, country folk wearing dells and city dwellers in suits, rich mine workers and poor shepherds, Russians from our Russian church, even a deaf congregation with sign language interpreters. Jesus had infiltrated every part of Airdenet society. This was a real and visible answer to many prayers and pleadings. Since we had finally arrived at a point where the church's need for our involvement was shrinking, it was easier to focus on the more mundane and normal aspects of life in Mongolia. My job at the Erdnett Concern Mine was, in turns, challenging, dull, and frustrating. I had to figure out how to manage huge and complex purchases of copper ore and its transport by train as far as the Chinese border. I had to deal with my sole customer, Caterpillar Incorporated, the assay firm providing the ore analysis, the train freight company, the smelters in China, and the Chinese customs and border folks. Between purchases, things would get slow, making the hours crawl by. I would try to make myself useful in other ways, like fixing computers and teaching English to mine executives, but I was often bored. I had repeatedly asked for additional clients, thinking it odd that I was entrusted with only a single customer. Eventually, the word trickled back down to me that one of the top bosses was refusing to let me have any more contracts because I was a security risk. He thought I worked for the CIA. When I collapsed in gales of laughter at this, my Mongolian associate hastened to add that the bigwig was not sure I was spying for the Americans. You might be an agent of the Vatican. Well, at least this cleared up the mystery. I was glad I had insisted on only working half-time, I was able to use the free hours to put together some Mongolian tracks on the differences between Mormonism and a biblical faith. The Mormons had recently posted four additional young missionaries to our city, bringing their total to six. Since they tended to seek out believers over regular pagans, we needed to teach God's people about the falsehoods the young Mormon elders were concealing from them. Their classic lead-in was, We believe the same as Brian and Magnus, but God has shown us just a little more. The teaching we had done when they had first arrived in November 1994 and these tracks to help new folks coming in seemed to do the trick. We didn't lose anyone to this cult group. The members they were able to gather were mostly from the Foreign Language Institute and were all hoping for trips to Utah. Louise began teaching English to a group of Russian ladies who were members of the Russian daughter church we had planted. These women had so much fun in these classes I was envious They loved Louise and gave her so many precious gifts to show their appreciation. Louise was also doing private lessons in the home of a brilliant wheelchair-bound Mongolian girl. Bayana had become part of the church, and Louise enjoyed her time with this sharp girl whose English was already beyond that of most of our Mongolian friends. Bayana's home life was very difficult and abusive, and there was a lot of hurt she and Louise prayed their way through. The three Peace Corps volunteers who were assigned to Erdnett and another two that were 60 kilometers west of us out in Bulgon were others who received Louise's love and friendship. We made lasting friendships with Carlene in Erdnett and Gerald in Bulgon. Gerald would stay with us and hang out whenever he came through our city, and Carleen's long walks in the hills with Louise were a lifeline for Louise as she grieved for Jed and moved Carlene toward a lifetime relationship with Jesus these activities and relationships along with the fun with our girls were the high points in louise's week because the running of a household in mongolia is filled with things that can only be described as drudgery she wrote to a friend
1: convenience here means the yak is already dead before you buy it for food
3: louise and i continued to homeschool molly and melody using a literature-based sunlight curriculum that was developed by missionaries for missionaries We loved it, and the material was so engaging that Louise and I looked forward to most of the classes as much as the girls did. Alice was able to sit in and soak up much of what was going on since there was a good deal of read-aloud involved. With the temperatures so bitterly cold outside, the girls did a lot of indoor imaginative play. However, Melody often went over to the houses of Mongolian friends as well as having them over to play. Even Alice, almost five, started to get groups of little girls coming to the door and asking to play with her. All three girls were happy and healthy, and each of them brought us joy in such completely different ways. The unique personality God puts into each child is another reason it makes sense to speak of daughter churches. There's a sheep in my bathtub. Chapter 32. A Brand New Thing Indigenous Original to the country, not introduced. Native, not foreign. Indigenous Church, a congregation of believers who live out their lives, including their Christian activity, in the patterns of the local society, and for whom any transformation of that society comes through the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the principles of Scripture. William Smalley, cultural implications of an indigenous church. Our efforts to leave behind all the non-essential elements and cultural barnacles that have affixed themselves to our ideas of church over the past 17 centuries bore fruit in Erdenet. We had consciously lightened the package and simplified church as we carried it into this new culture, We were convinced God wanted to do a new thing here, not simply clone the American or European church that sent us. As we observed Jesus' assembly, we saw evidence of a truly indigenous movement emerging. The basic gathering for every believer was the home church, a small group of 15 or fewer disciples that met every week in an apartment, living room, a gare, army barracks, a one-room frame house outside the city limits, or anywhere that served the purpose. These groups would interact with God's Word, pray for each other, reach out in practical ways to the lost, share food and the Lord's Supper together, and share their lives with one another. Communion was done with whatever elements were readily available, often unda, fruit soda pop, or tsai, salty milk tea, and borzog hard, dry rolls. As the groups grew, and they did grow, they would multiply to keep the numbers in each group small and fellowship intimate. House group leaders mentored others to take on the new groups as they were birthed. Groups visited other areas and birthed new house churches in other communities, whether a single church or a whole cluster of them. Much depended on the population density. One daughter church was started with only three families living isolated in a wide spot on the road north of Erdenet. These families were in charge of maintaining a pump station that supplied water from the Seleng River to the city and mine. When a group of believers on an outing broke down there, a church was born. They called the church Pump Station No. 4. The house churches in Erdenet and those in our daughter church of Bulgan would gather periodically for large city-wide celebration meetings. Often groups from outlying areas would manage to join us. The format of these big gatherings, which took place on Sundays, was decidedly different from any of the missionary team's sending churches. These gatherings met in a rented hall or theater, sang indigenous Mongolian music led by the worship team, offered testimonies from those recently come to Christ or recently healed, thrilled to dramas created and performed by the church's drama team, performed praise dances in the traditional style, shared items of interest to newcomers and the whole church, learned new songs, shared from the Word, and prayed for those needing healing or a touch from God. Those who shared often dressed in the traditional Mongolian dell, and the worship and dance teams had matching costumes in the traditional style. This was all their idea, and we gave no input. The dramas in particular were a powerful element of the celebration meeting and the curious would almost always respond to Jesus through the dramas more than any other single part of the meeting. The forms of worship and greeting newcomers were distinctively Mongolian. Not only were the songs and music written by church members, but they began using Mongolian instruments like the murenhur, the horse-headed fiddle, and the yakka, harp, on occasion. These big meetings would last from two and a half to three hours, sometimes more. The time was determined by how much the leaders had planned on including, rather than on how long we had rented the building. This caused the foreigners no end of discomfort, as sometimes the next group would be waiting outside for us to vacate. But all the Mongolians, those worshipping and those waiting, seemed to take it in stride. When we would urge the leaders to tie things up, they would reply by listing things still coming. Ghana has a new song to teach. An old Batsuk has a great testimony of a vision he had last week while herding his sheep. When we would give up and go out front to apologize to the group waiting to use the building, they would respond, They're not finished yet, are they? No? Well, no problem. We can wait. In Mongolia, an event isn't over until it is over. They are what sociologists call an event-oriented culture, while all of us on the church planning team were from strongly time-oriented cultures. When I train new church planters headed for unreached people groups, I tell them that if they are successful, the churches that result will make the church planters uncomfortable. If a church takes on an indigenous character, then it will be outside the comfort zone of the apostolic messengers. It will seem weird to the missionaries. Jesus' assembly and our daughter churches certainly passed this test. In the midst of our discomfort, we were wild with joy that our children had an indigenous Mongolian character that was unique and different from anything any of us had known before. In fact, it was new to the world as well. Jesus had birthed a whole new expression of his eternally living body. There's a sheep in my bathtub. Chapter 33. Working Ourselves Out. Evidence that the church in Mongolia was ready to stand on its own in Christ was piling up. It had become routine for our team to ask the Mongolian leaders what they felt should be done about a situation, and marvel at the answers they came back with after seeking God's guidance. We had been actively working ourselves out of a job, identifying one by one the ministries still relying on one of us. Our goal was to hand over each to a Mongolian disciple, and this began to happen with lightning speed. One glorious spring day when the temperature, while still south of freezing, had managed to allow ice-melt puddles to form on the black surface of the street, I was finally able to shed my parka and move around in a t-shirt. Later our spirits were high as we gathered for our team meeting and realized something else had changed. I was doing my usual task of asking everybody what they had done with the church over the previous week. I would then follow up with a question as to what the Mongolian leader they thought was ready to inherit that ministry. Well, one week late in February or early in March of 1996, I came up empty. Beyond the storytelling Magnus and I were doing from the Old Testament, no one on our church planning team had done anything that week. Everything had been handed over. Without any of us realizing, we had worked ourselves into obsolescence. The Mongolian believers were doing everything. We were doing nothing, and no one had even noticed. It felt like the moment that comes when you're teaching a child to ride a bike and they start pedaling along a little faster than you can run, and you let go. You see them riding unassisted, and they don't even know it yet. You just stop, panting, and enjoy the sight of a glorious, unself conscious freedom. You've stopped being a participant and become in an instant, a joyous spectator. We met with the five elders-to-be and shared our discovery with them. Predictably, they protested that they needed us very much. We recounted to them all the evidence to the contrary. They insisted we were still necessary for so many things. We gently challenged them to name something. They couldn't come up with anything we were doing. We helped them understand loving us was not the same as needing us and there was nothing disloyal about moving into spiritual adulthood as a church. We would remain partners with them and would continue to help, but only at the request of the Mongolian leadership. As we discussed these matters, the tears gave way to a growing excitement, tentative at first, and they began to help us in planning the handover process we'd follow in the weeks and months to come. We decided that, at our celebration meeting on Sunday, March 24th, in the City Theatre, we would give notice our foreign team was moving into an advisory capacity to the Mongolian elders-to-be, at their request. This was designed to ease the Church into a new understanding that they, the Mongolians, were in charge, under Christ the Head, and we were on our way out. We would formally transfer our authority to the Mongolian leaders at a special ceremony in the near future. We wanted a period where they exercised effective authority while we continued to be there if they needed us. We could thus monitor how well the modeling of servant leadership had taken. We began functioning as silent observers. When the time came, we must have explained it right. The Church responded in a very excited and positive way, and though many came up and told us how special and needed we were, No one told us that they didn't think the church was up to following Jesus without us. Maybe some of the joy was due to the other announcement we made that Sunday morning. Louise and I told the church the wonderful news that God had given us another baby. We were expecting due in September. Everyone seemed to understand that while there was no replacing Jedediah, there was a restoration God was bestowing on all of us. The huge significance of two coming births a baby Mongolian church movement, and a new Hogan baby, increased our sense of excited expectation. Planning our exit was fun. I could enjoy life in Airdenet without any responsibilities beyond my four hours a day at the Copper Mine headquarters. We spent a lot of time entertaining our friends, Mongolian and foreign. The long winter was over in so many ways, and yet Mongolia still had some drama in store for us. We were overjoyed. When you feel that good, you've just got to share it with those who will understand or you feel like you'll burst. So, we sent out words of our preparation for handing over the churches to the mission community in Ulaanbaatar. As the news spread around the capital city, the reactions began to filter back to us. Are you nuts? What are you thinking? You've only been there for three years. No way is that long enough to plant a church. I knew all along you wet-behind-the-ears wywammers would make a mess like this. It is just irresponsible sending out young, untrained volunteers to plant churches. Six months of training! Ha! If you'd had Bible school or seminary, you'd know there is no way these Mongolians are ready for leadership. It is all going to fall to pieces within weeks of when you leave. You'd better call this off. Your leaders out there in Airdenet will not be able to cope with the cult groups already in town and the others that will be drawn to your vulnerable groups like a pack of hungry wolves. They will be easy prey for false teachers. Who is going to defend them? Anyway, the elders just can't be ready. They are going to squabble and fall apart and we will have to go out there and pick up the pieces. This is so irresponsible and inconsiderate of you. We have our own ministries, and we are going to have to drop them to take over yours. You know that there is still sin in this church. We'd blundered into a firestorm of protests and objections we had no idea even existed. Many of our fellow missionaries, friends, and colleagues seemed to be in agreement that we had missed God's will and were abandoning our responsibilities in Airdenet. We were stunned as we met and swapped the feedback we were getting we had no idea how to respond it seemed clear we needed to take what we were receiving seriously these brothers and sisters had shown fellowship and great kindness to us in the past especially while we were suffering they cared for us and their harsh words were motivated by real concern that we were making a fatal choice by handing over the reins and leaving and yet to us the evidence that we would reached our goals was still so clear We didn't know what to do with such contradictory guidance. I commented that rolling back what we had just announced would be like trying to put whipped cream back into the can. How do you take back a ministry somebody is already doing better than when you had done it, when it was yours? We were distraught as we considered these things. The veiled threat had not gone unnoticed either. Some would feel it their responsibility before God to come up after we flew home and wrest away control for the Mongolian church's own good. We felt we suddenly faced an impossible decision. As we met and talked and cried and prayed under the dark storm clouds of these perplexing issues, some beams of light broke through. The first came from something the Lord reminded Magnus and Maria. Magnus shared that he had been thinking about the accusation that there was still sin in the church in Erdnep. That's true, I responded. We know it better than they do. Yeah, it is true, but the Holy Spirit reminded Maria and me that there is still sin in the churches in Sweden that sent us here to Mongolia as well. A light went on. Oh, there's sin in the Vineyard Fellowship in California that sent us out too, Louise replied. Well, our four-square church in southern Oregon certainly isn't sin-free, interjected Lance. Ruslan and Svetlana added their Siberian home church to this list, and we all realized something. None of us on the church planting team had ever experienced body life in a church that wasn't still struggling with sin. You can't plant something you have never experienced, something no one has ever modeled for you. Even if we stayed on another 20 years, or a 120 We were never going to plant a sin-free church. This revelation took a huge load off our shoulders. The sin was ultimately Jesus' problem. He was head of the body. He was used to this work. We could safely leave the work of perfecting his bride in his scarred hands. However, there were still a number of issues the missionaries had raised that we couldn't answer. I found the answer we were looking for in the 20th chapter of the book of Acts. When Paul was in this same stage with his churches, he said goodbye to his disciples. I read what he said to these elders of the church of Ephesus. You know everything I did during the time I was with you when I first came to Asia. Some plotted against me and caused me a lot of sorrow and trouble, but I served the Lord and was humble. When I preached in public or taught in your homes, I didn't hold back from telling anything that would help you. I told Jews and Gentiles to turn to God and have faith in our Lord Jesus. I have gone from place to place, preaching to you about God's kingdom. But now I know that none of you will ever see me again. I tell you today that I am no longer responsible for any of you. I have told you everything God wants you to know. Look after yourselves and everyone the Holy Spirit has placed in your care. Be like shepherds to God's church. It is the flock that he bought with the blood of his own son. I know that after I am gone, others will come like fierce wolves to attack you. Some of your own people will tell lies to win over the Lord's followers. Be on your guard. Remember how day and night for three years I kept warning you with tears in my eyes. I now place you in God's care. Remember the message about his great kindness, this message can help you and give you what belongs to you as God's people. After Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. Everyone cried and hugged and kissed him. Acts 20:18 through 37 Common English Version This story from our instructional manual for church planting, the New Testament, completed the revelation that Magnus and Maria had begun. The word of God set us free from the shackles human judgments had laid on our hearts. Suddenly it was so clear. We had heard from God about leaving. Paul had shipped in the same boat we were in now. He knew storms were coming against the young church and its leaders, both from without and from within. But Paul knew something that allowed him to let go. He knew what they had received. Forgiveness. Faith. The kingdom. And the love of God, in fact, everything God wants you to know, was enough to bring them through what was to come. And he knew the church, the flock, belonged to God who bought it with Jesus' blood. God was able to keep what he had in his hand. Paul also acknowledged that the elders of the church were not placed there by him, but were called and placed in that function by the Holy Spirit himself. These revelations made us breathe a whole lot easier. We were greatly encouraged and felt strangely close to Paul as we read his words, but we laughed aloud when we realized he had planted the church in Ephesus in just three years. It may not have happened much in recent history, but now we had biblical proof that three years was an adequate time span for the apostolic task. We picked ourselves up and began to move forward with confidence again toward the destiny we and the Mongolian churches had chosen. We knew our work was almost finished. The church was not perfect, but it was so ready to stand on its own. There's a sheep in my bathtub, chapter 34. Passing the baton. Easter Sunday, 1996 made history both in Mongolia and in the church of jesus christ early that morning the whole team had gathered one last time at magnus and maria's fifth floor apartment and shared a breakfast the swedes made swedish pancakes an act of love for the americans since this is normally a dinner entree in sweden we chattered about the exciting events ahead the easter service where we would hand over the church to mongolian leadership our family's move home to the usa and the rest of the team's plans for finishing their language teaching contracts and moving away as well. I brought up the fact that we needed to make the transfer of authority very clear and even visual for the believers who would be at the Easter celebration gathering. We decided the relay race would be an excellent way to portray what was happening. The Mongolian people knew about this Olympic race, and since this was an Olympic year, the Games were on everyone's mind. We fashioned a baton from a cardboard paper towel roll and some foil and ribbon to use for the visual pass. After the breakfast dishes were cleared, our whole team walked over to the auditorium, rented for the celebration. The Easter service for Jesus' assembly of Erdnet was standing room only. Nearly 800 packed out the largest hall in the city— We later discovered that many more had been turned away by the building superintendent, who closed the doors when he saw the crowd. Those who made it in gathered to worship Jesus and to witness the ceremony, marking the passing of authority from our apostolic church planting team to the local elders. We explained and acted out the analogy of a relay race to graphically portray what was taking place. The baton was passed from our family and Magnus, representing the church planters, to a group of Mongolian leaders in full national regalia. It symbolized our time to run with this body was past, and theirs was just beginning. They were so ready. The baton was passed. For the first time in history, a fully indigenous Mongolian church was fully in Mongolian hands, and they were firmly in the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. The entire service was a celebration of joy, even in the midst of goodbyes, We had only 450 baptized believers in the congregation, so many of those crowding the room were newcomers and seekers. As the Mongolian service came to a reluctant close, I raced across town with Ruslan to our Russian daughter church. They were having their second baptism, and, as I had done the first one, they wanted me to be there. When I arrived, I discovered the Russian believers expected me to actually enter the pool and baptize. I tried to protest I was unprepared and not dressed for it, but they refused to accept my refusal. I ended up exchanging my slacks for a big towel tied around my waist, and I got in and baptized thirteen new believers, including two entire families. I then apologized for having to run, but I was in danger of missing the van taking my family and our bags to the train station. I quickly dried off and redressed, without my soaking wet underwear, and started to run for our apartment. By the time I got there, the underwear, which I was holding as I ran, had frozen into a solid ball around my fist. Dealing with that was an ironic task, considering the loftier spiritual pursuits I'd been involved with all day. God has ways of bringing one down to earth. The van was already being loaded, and I'd just made it, Louise, the kids, and I squeezed in with all our bags and a number of friends and headed off to the train station. When we arrived, there were many hands to get our things over to the train and into our compartment. A great number of the Mongolian believers had beaten us to the platform, and we worshipped, prayed, and wept and hugged until the train left. It was heart-wrenching for all of us, leaving dear friends and teammates with no clear plan for when we would see one another again. Our girls were leaving the home they had lived in longer than any other, and the only one Alice could even remember. Trains don't pause for emotions or goodbyes, though, and ours pulled out of the Airdnet station with Mongolian friends running alongside, waving. Louise and I had barely dried our tears when we looked out the window and saw the hill Jedediah was buried on. A fresh batch of tears sprouted as we remembered what else we were leaving behind. The next morning, our train arrived at the main terminal in Ulaanbaatar, and the Leatherwood family was there to pick us up for our goodbye breakfast with our Mongolian Enterprises co-workers. After breakfast, Helen Richardson, Rick, Laura, and their kids drove us to the airport one last time. Then, after almost three and a half years, we flew away from our adopted country. There's a sheep in my bathtub. Chapter 35, The Road the Road goes ever on and on. Surely you don't disbelieve the prophecies because you had a hand in bringing them about yourself. You don't really suppose, do you, that all your adventures and escapes were managed by mere luck, just for your sole benefit? You are a very fine person, Mr. Baggins, and I am very fond of you, but you are only quite a little fellow in a wide world after all. The Hobbit by J. R. R. Tolkien After leaving Mongolia, we flew to Copenhagen and traveled by rail around Europe for a couple of months. Louise and I shared about what God had done in Erdnett with a number of groups at YWAM bases and at the Churches of Friends in the 11 nations we were able to visit. The girls were good travelers, but some of the finer points of culture were lost on them. Asked at the end of a very full Louvre Museum Day in Paris what impressed them the most, their answer was not Mona Lisa, winged victory, or Venus de Milo. The doughnuts in the basement, was their sole enthusiastic memory. Five months into her pregnancy, Louise voted for the wedding at Cana by Renaissance painter Paolo Veronese, but admitted when pressed that her favorite thing about this painting was the comfy bench under it. Things improved when I backed off on the museums, and the Sound of Music tour of Salzburg had a much better reception. Europe was a good way to decompress from the life we were leaving behind. The return to California held many shocks that would have been all the harder to face had we attempted the re-entry just hours after leaving Mongolia. We arrived at my mother's home in Atascadero, California, reinvolved ourselves in church life at our two local sending churches, and began to prepare for a home birth at Nana's house. We were planning a move to the Caribbean to work with YWAM in training up and sending out church-planting missionaries from that region, but we needed to have the baby first. My parents were gracious in providing our large and noisy family a safe haven for the summer. On the 10th of August, Peter Magnus joined the Hogan family. Our joy at welcoming another son was overwhelming. Jedediah was not to be replaced, but the father was faithful in sending us consolation and new beginnings. Our service in Barbados ended abruptly after a mere eight months, a casualty of irreconcilable expectations. In that short time, we managed to fall in love with the warmth of both the gentle Caribbean climate and our new Barbadian friends. Sadly, the ministry was not ready for us, and figuring that out was rough on everyone. We returned home to California's central coast to lick our wounds. It seemed to be a good time to take a year off from active service. I plunged into full-time study for a master's degree in ministry, focused on intercultural studies from Hope International University. The school was in Southern California, but I used mentored distance learning and completed my degree from home. I ended up being one of the very first to study through the World Christian Foundations program developed by Dr. Ralph Winter. It was the most rigorous and rewarding study I've undertaken, a perspectives course on steroids. In 1998 we moved again, north this time, to foggy and cool Humboldt County, California. Up among the redwoods on the north coast we joined a ministry called Church Planting Coaches which we had been exploring since our furlough three years earlier. Kevin and Laura Sutter had been single-handedly running this International Service Ministry of Youth with a Mission for years and were overjoyed to have reinforcements at last. Together we are currently responsible for training and sustaining 300 YWAM church planting teams around the globe. We travel and teach extensively in YWAM schools of Frontier Mission and we develop resources to equip those desiring to see churches multiply among the unreached. I've managed to return to Mongolia several times over the years since we left. I savor the hospitality of our old teammate Mats, his lovely wife Chimgay, and their beautiful Swedish-Mongolian daughter, Lisa. Chimgay was one of the earliest believers in Erdnet, and her sister was the girl who had died the same Christmas as Jed. The first two times I returned, I taught church planting in the SOFM that Wywam AirNet runs every year. What an incredible experience to sit in a gear and teach Mongolian missionaries the same New Testament principles God used to bring them into the kingdom, such a short time ago. On one of these trips, I was finally able to place a headstone on the grave. It reads, "Jed Hogan, born eleven two ninety four, died." Twelve, twenty-three, ninety-four. Jesus is worthy. Our whole family was able to return together in 2000. The visit really was good for all of us and provided some needed catharsis. I made this my last time of teaching in the SOFM by training my replacement. Baida is now an accomplished church planning trainer in her own right. At the very end of the visit, during what was to be our final night in Erdenet, I came down with appendicitis. Unable to be flown out, I ended up under the knife at a small Russian clinic in Erdenet. After the appendectomy was successful, Louise and I felt she and the children needed to return home as planned so as not to miss additional days of school. I would follow when I was released by my doctors. However, a post-operative infection attacked my body and I ended up needing another surgery and a stay in intensive care. For 18 days I fought for my life. None of the available antibiotics seemed to touch my infection. Finally, when all seemed lost, God provided some ciprofloxin through Magda, a Dutch nurse in Erdnett, and my condition immediately responded. I was finally released and, with my appendix in a jar, able to fly home to my very frightened family. It would be another five years before I walked on Mongolian soil again. In November 2005 I was back in Airdenet for the annual Mongolian Mission Conference. I had been asked to be the keynote speaker. I was stunned to see the very hall where we had passed the baton of leadership in 1996 crammed full to way beyond capacity for a week. There were a thousand people crammed into a room designed for 700. It was standing room only and they had gone to an invitation only format several years before because attendance continually outstrips the available space. A well-dressed, middle-aged Mongolian man stepped up to greet me during one of the breaks. He introduced himself and quickly added that he knew me, but I didn't know him. He was one of Jesus' assembly's current elders. He wanted to share about the day he had met me. On a Sunday morning in spring 1996, I came with my friend to a large meeting here. There was a lot of happiness and excitement, but it didn't draw me in. Then, towards the end, I saw something I had never seen, never even heard about before. You and some others got up on that stage and did something that stunned me. You handed away real power. You were the leaders of this huge group, and you gave it to these Mongolians and walked away. No one ever does that. I didn't understand what I was seeing, but I knew I had to return. Within a month, I was a disciple. And now, almost ten years later, I am leading this church. Your disciples followed your example and passed on their leadership as God led them to new works. I wanted to meet you again, and thank you. At the same conference, I was able to catch up with Boggy and Nara, a young couple who exemplify the best in Mongolian church planters. Baggi was one of the original 14 teen girl disciples in Jesus' assembly. Nara, her, her husband had been in prison while we were in Mongolia. He had come to faith through a Mongolian Bible his mother had sent him. Upon his release, he had come to Erdanet to be discipled in his new walk. Eventually, both he and Bogi had gone through the Mongolian Mission Center, now YWAM Erdanet, Discipleship Training School, and the School of Frontier Missions, with me teaching church planting, married and gone off to plant new churches. Their initial target was Darhan, Mongolia's second largest city. The last time I had seen them, I had been on my way to Erdunet. They had shown up at midnight in my sleeper compartment while the train was parked at the Darhan station. They reported that they had been working in Darhan for just a year and had already planted a congregation of 110 with and three daughter churches. With all the excitement, I was a long time getting back to sleep after they would left my sleeper compartment. Not many months later I received a letter from Boggy with a photograph of them passing a baton to the leaders they had trained in the Darhan church. Actually handling such visible and tangible proof that the movement was now spontaneously reproducing was, for me at least, like touching a holy relic must have been for my ancestors in the Dark Ages. When Boggy, Nara, and I met again at the conference I asked them about the photo. When I mentioned I was surprised that they had not stayed on in Darhan as pastors, With surprised looks, they responded, But Brian, we're apostles, and apostles leave. The model had been seen, understood, and replicated.